electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. Breaking up big tech as Washington sets the stage for a crackdown. Would forcing Facebook to split with Instagram really be a punishment? Would it even unlock more value? We'll dig into all of that. Speaking of unintended consequences, will the push for green energy send oil prices soaring? We'll tell you who could feel the pinch. Plus, the street likes oat milk, Microsoft likes video games, and Elon Musk likes Bitcoin, at least for today. We have all of that ahead, but we start with today's markets. Dom Chu is here with the numbers for us. Dom? All right, Kel, they may like Bitcoin, but they don't like the market so much overall today. But you can see there the, the losses right now are fractional with regard to the Dow Industrials. Just down about 260-some points, three-quarters of a percent downside, one-third of one percent downside, 13 points to the downside for the S&P. 42.34, the last trade there. Remember, record highs we did set on Friday, so not too terrible in terms of context overall. If you take a look at one of the big macro trades playing out, you mentioned the, the energy boom and green. What could you do to oil prices? Well, oil prices right now are already at three-year highs. Got to go all the way back to October of 2018 to kind of get a sense for where this oil price was at that point. Remember, it wasn't that long ago. Depressed prices led to negative crude oil futures for WTI. So keep an eye on those oil prices above $71 per barrel right now for WTI crude futures. Take a look also at the cryptocurrency industry, Coinbase, MicroStrategy, Square, and Riot Blockchain. Some of these stocks are very much associated with that Bitcoin and or cryptocurrency overall trade up big so far today after we are seeing some of that move higher in Bitcoin prices thanks to Elon Musk's slight positivity about things with Bitcoin And, of course, also Paul Tudor Jones and his comments about cryptocurrency. And then one last place to watch. If you were wondering what the next meme stock you were going to be, congratulations if you guessed it was going to be Corsair. If you've never heard of them, Kelly, they make gaming hardware. Think headphones, joysticks, keyboards, mice, that sort of thing. It is the next Wall Street bets, darling. A lot of mentions there, a lot of mentions on stock twits. It's off the highs of the session, though, right now. At one point it was, Kelly, up 33%. To start the day, it's only up 22 points right now. Keep it on Corsair, the latest one of those meme stocks in today's trade. Kel, back over to you. Dom, I wrote about this in the newsletter today, but there are more and more people trading the meme stocks like an asset class. You know how they always say, oh, you can put 5% of your portfolio in gold or maybe even in Bitcoin. And now they go, you know, maybe 5% in the meme stock. And, you know, it's so crazy because if you think about it, you have to have an actively managed ETF for that, right? Because they change all the time. And what could it be formulaic? Yeah, I mean, it could be formulaic. I don't know, but who knows what that Wall Street bets crowd looks for when it finds these types of things. It used to just be short interest, but some of these ones maybe aren't as heavily shorted as some of the ones that we've seen before, like GameStop or AMC. Still, Corsair, who would have thought? That's a great point. Dom, we appreciate it. Dominic Chu. Meantime, Congress is cracking down on big tech, introducing bills to make it easier to break them up and harder for them to consolidate. Will this finally end the company's dominant market performance, or could it potentially create even more value for shareholders? Joining me now is Paul Meeks. He's the portfolio manager of Independent Solutions Wealth Management and the Wireless Fund. Also, Gene Munster is founder and managing partner at Loop Ventures. Welcome to you both, Paul. What's your anticipation as to how this all plays out? 
Well, I think some regulations are coming. I actually don't know if it's going to be uh, so draconian to make this a really big threat. Remember, this is essentially the conclusion of a House subcommittee that wrapped up their investigation several months ago. And uh, if they do push for regulations, I don't think it's going to be passed easily, even though we have the skinniest uh, margin of uh, Democrats of both houses of Congress. So I'll believe it when we see it. And also when it does happen, I don't think it's going to be as scary as some people are making it out to be. Well, that's, Gene, we'll return to you and ask, okay, let's say hypothetically, because Facebook and Amazon seem to be the most uh, under the microscope, if, if Facebook has to divest Instagram, you think we're talking about $1.2 trillion in value, is that right? Which would be about double where it is right now or something like that. Well, I think that if Facebook is ultimately broken up, you know, taking Paul's uh, agree, agree that it's going to take time to sort itself out, but ultimately if there is a breakup, if we just kind of go down that path, I think in Facebook's case, kind of this piece that uh, really creates leverage if they broke up the company is WhatsApp. There's about 2 billion monthly active users. That's the same amount as Instagram and Facebook have combined. And today, WhatsApp is hardly uh, monetized. It will never monetize to the full extent that uh, we see from the, the Facebook and Instagram, but it could at a 25% pace. So you just look at that piece alone, that could be 200 billion. You look at messenger shops, that definitely has value. I do caution that there's something philosophical that I'm uh, in opposition to Facebook and kind of what it does to kind of our lives. And uh, But ultimately, this is a company that has a lot of levers. And I think in the near term, whether it's broken up or not, it's likely going higher. Well, and I should correct myself because Facebook's actually in about a $950 billion market cap now, Paul. I guess I was caught up in, I don't know, 2020 or the last, I don't know when it was back at 600 billion, it feels like yesterday. So we're already talking about nearly a trillion dollars in size for this, joining the likes of Apple and Microsoft. We don't really hear those other two companies quite so much in the crosshairs. So is this really just going to be a Facebook and Amazon story? Well, one of the things that's happened, and I think it trumps all the stuff that is potentially coming down the pipe uh, from the feds with regulations, is there's been a explosion in uh, digital advertising. The numbers keep going up and up. And what happens is not only is the pie growing really, really fast, is the three major players, at least in the United States, Google, Facebook, and now uh, Amazon in the third position are gaining share. And so, man, if uh, this plays out like I think it's going to play out, all three of those stocks, just based on that driver, are going to go a lot higher. So, Paul, you basically think the stocks are going higher because there's not going to be much that happens on the regulatory front. Gene, you think that even if something does, it would benefit shareholders. Could they? Could Washington ever come up with a way to engineer this so that shareholders wouldn't benefit from the breakup of this co these companies, Gene? Yeah, his audio dropped. Gene, just hold your thoughts for a second. Paul, I'll ask you the same question. Do you think Washington could ever engineer this in a way to deliberately make sure that shareholders wouldn't benefit from, say, Facebook spinning off Instagram or WhatsApp? I don't think that would be their intent. Of course, their intent is to protect uh, folks' privacy and also uh, cybersecurity concerns. So if they took the most possible draconian measures, 
Maybe, but I don't think that's in the cards. Paul, final question then is your advice to investors to stick with these big cap tech companies, the FANG trade, if you want to call it that, for lack of a better term, and ride this out for years to come? I mean, are there any other ways to play the consolidation that you're describing and any risks to the fact that people will go, well, wait a minute, these companies do keep getting more powerful and we are really insistent on trying to stop that or create more competition? So uh, first of all, you know, among the uh, FANGs, I like these three that I mentioned not necessarily the rest of that crew. So that's uh, one point to make. Also, Kelly, you've covered uh, technology like I have for a long time. There's always innovation. There are always new things. Yeah. I think we can hold these three companies as a core to tech portfolio for many, many years, but there'll be many opportunities, fast and furious. There always are. Gene, is it ever appropriate to ask if allowing monopolies is good for competition because Monopolies get big and boring and anti, you know, they, they don't continue to innovate. They don't necessarily create new products. They kind of focus on their core business, for example, advertising, and they monetize that and they don't really care about anything else. I don't care what they tell you. So if you look back to the instance of kind of the Microsoft transition to the mobile phone, which they completely missed, some say it was because of regulatory scrutiny, but others say they would, they would never have gotten on that boat. You know, if you let these big tech platforms just continue to do what they're going to do, to Paul's point, will the next frontier for technological innovation still pop up elsewhere? I think it will. And ultimately, these big companies are looking to acquire different assets. Uh, I think that the the need for, we do a lot of work in earlier stage companies too, I think the need for tech and these companies to continue to acquire this is a huge opportunity. If you look at Apple, they do more than 60 acquisitions a year. You usually don't hear about those. Wow. And so I'm a big believer that ultimately is competition does win. And so I think that regulators will, will fall in line with that. It's going to take time. Uh, for it to sort itself out. And uh, investors are going to have to be patient as this moves forward. But I think uh, these tech companies will uh, end up on top. But Gene, you're saying you think that competition will win out, even though Apple's buying, sounds like, 60 of their competitors or parts of the ecosystem or whatever you'd want to call it, 60 a year? I mean, that's a lot. It, I, I, my point is that there are a lot of these innovations come from companies that ultimately get acquired. Those are great outcomes. Yeah. And and at the end of the day, I think is a uh, question is, is the consumer ultimately better off? Uh, and so I think uh, investors can make money in these companies as they start and they get acquired. I think consumers benefit as all these, these ecosystems start to work closer together. Yeah, if that's so the metric they still care about. Exactly. Definitely, like you said, good for the incumbents. Gene Munster, Paul Meeks, thank you both very, very much today. Speaking about the big thank tech you. stocks. And speaking of growth stocks, my next guest is taking a deep dive into Peloton's high valuation and its current market cap of $33 billion. BMO Simeon Siegel says Peloton's 5 million members would have to subscribe for 26 years each to justify the company's stock price. He's managing director and senior retail analyst at BMO Capital Markets. He's got Peloton. Yes, as an underperformer, he joins me now. Simeon, it doesn't matter. You know, you just got to you gotta ride the Momo. Good fun, good fun. Good to see you, Kelly. Uh, listen, I think the, uh, the point there, there's a lot of really interesting comments, even in what you said. So the 5 million, Peloton isn't even at 5 million. So they're at two, they'll work their way up to three, and then the world is their oyster. So I think what is interesting here is, and, and you, you and I have talked about this all the time. I mean, I love the product. I think it's yeah. a phenomenal company. But I think that the question here is, are we giving them credit? Are we already looking further out to a member acquisition that we don't give other companies? 
And that's why we took a look at those numbers and basically just said, without opining and without trying to kind of make big accusations, just to say, what is the market saying? What are investors saying? And so the company has outlined a 15 million member serviceable addressable market. If we just take the gross profit dollars that those members would have to hit, that would imply a six and a half year subscription. So a little bit more plausible, but still nicely above that churn. So it's a really interesting dynamic here where we can either look at this path from 2 million members north, or then we can also think about, okay, well, what are we assuming they're going to stay on the bike? And let's remember Peloton as a company is still less than 10 years old. Right. So you're talking about, I mean, look, if any of us think back to what we were doing 26 years ago, it's hard to imagine, you know, that anything in our life is, is still the same, let alone a Peloton subscription. So I guess the interesting question is, why is the stock performing the way that it is? And, you know, we often speak about um, the other retail lines that you cover and the metrics that are important there. And I mean, do the fundamentals matter here? Peloton clearly belongs in, it would seem to me, some kind of tech, subscription, software, you know, that kind of basket, right? So, by the way, you know what else is a subscription? Perhaps one of the first original subscription models, a gym, hmm. right? You go to Planet Fitness, they take a monthly recurring revenue from your bank account. You have to do nothing. So it's the original, this idea of thinking about we have a subscription model and we have churn. And so what's so interesting is that, yeah, we're talking about it in the context, right? I'm, I'm following up big tech conversation on CNBC right now. But at the end of the day, if we look at a Planet Fitness, which is public, has almost 15 million members, pays a monthly recurring fee, right? We collect a monthly recurring fee. It's $20 a month instead of 40. And the market decides they're worth wherever it is today, $8 billion. So it's this idea where you can have these really good companies, but trying to think through how much larger are they? And by the way, the response is, well, fitness has a very high churn. And that's what I think is going to be so interesting. I think as, as the company matures, as the base matures, as we find there's increasingly more three-year-old members in Peloton, because by the way, three, four years ago, it was 50 to 100,000 members. So as that comes, we're going to start seeing a lot more of what happens. And that's not talking, that's not even acknowledging competitions heating up, right? So last year, you had the best stay-at-home environment coupled with no real rivals. Now, the amount of funding, the amount of dollars that are finding various parts of Connected Fitness. We just did an 80-page research primer on Connected Fitness. The fact that we found 80 companies to look at is mind-blowing. Right. So I think like that's where we're going to go forward. I think it's the beginning of the industry. But like you said with monopolies, yeah. how many industries do you know where there's one player? And not many. And the stock's down 25% year-to-date. So, I mean, you've been consistently cautious on it. And I think this is another good way to illustrate what's baked in at current values. Thank you for joining us. Simeon Siegel with BMO Capital Markets. Coming up, energy is far and away the outperformer among S&P sectors this year. It's up nearly 50% since January. That's nearly twice as much as the next leader. Investors might love the outperformance, but what about consumers who are having to pay up? Plus, we'll look at the huge run-up in green stocks and EV plays and why some are comparing it to the dot-com bubble. Back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. the exchange, Wall Street's pivot to clean energy has led trillions of dollars being dumped into so-called green stocks over the past year. But are all those inflows actually creating a bubble? Christina Partsinevelis has taken a look at this crowded trade for us. Christina. Well, we have popular words like clean, green, ESG. They're all in vogue, even if they may not indicate concrete action towards sustainability. Although there's been massive inflow of investments into the sector, clean energy stocks are among the biggest laggards year to date. So take, for example, these popular clean energy ETFs, TAN, which is a solar one, ICLN, down roughly hovering around 20%, even PBW down double digits. And we have a similar story when we look at the individual company level, a sea of red across the board that we can show you on your screen. An index provider, MSCI, says renewable energy stocks is as crowded a trade as technology stocks were at the height of the 1999.com boom. A bold statement, right? So the debate rages on. Are these energy stocks worth their weight in green? Listen in. We think there is a green bubble. We think you could see it evidenced by zero companies with zero revenue. A lot of these EV companies uh, with zero revenue being valued in the multiple billions. We think the bubble has already begun to burst. We think the true bursting happens in the second half of this year. Whereas others say this is really about a long-term play. Funds are continuing to repurpose to sustainable mandates. And so uh, I think that definitely indicates that the trend will continue. Um, I did take a look just earlier today and assets, at least in the U.S., have continued to grow up um, into the second quarter. Although some argue there could be a disconnect from the underlying value or assets of these companies, which pretty much defines a, a bubble in itself, right? The value of the assets and the market cap that we're seeing right now. But the general consensus is this is a long-term push. Right. So how do you push out those greenwashers, those that are claiming they're ethical, right? And using those those bogue words, right, those buzzwords. Right. That's something that's going to take a little bit more time. Well, and the interesting thing to me about the green bubble is that the performance isn't there. I mean, we're t- these stocks have been terrible stocks. So it's bizarre because you have people absolutely piling in. The performance has been terrible. There's no profit. No yeah, of, there's, yeah. no pro- there's, there's no sign of a turnaround. It, it seems to be this idea of please just take my money and, and do something with it. And I don't know if it's for the benefit of the investor to earn some sort of credential. Obviously, many people really want to see this transformation happen. But the only thing missing in this bubble seems to be the performance. Which is why we'll most likely see consolidation in the space over the next while. But it's going to be those that are, you know, greenwashing uh, that may be pushed out. So it's, a, it's for investors, it's a matter of keeping an eye and paying attention. And the, right. the regulations are going to change going forward, too, because the U.K. is looking into that. Right. To say, here's who can actually call themselves one of these kinds exactly. of Exactly. By 2022 is something they're looking at. It, it makes sense, because right now it's so ephemeral. Christina, thank you. Thank you. As we discuss all this, uh, demand for oil is still increasing. So here's the question. Will the push for green energy, will all of this investment into this next wave of stocks create a shortage of the oil we're using today? My next guest says we need both traditional and clean energy, and he's not concerned about an oil supply squeeze. Let's bring in Rob Thummel. He's a portfolio manager and managing director at Tortoise. 
Rob, so the journal has a great sort of takeaway on this where they explain the reason why a lot of people think oil could be headed 70, 80, even $100 a barrel is because look at what's happened at Exxon. Look at what's happened in Shell. Oil companies are basically being pressured by their investors not to pump more oil. Yeah, Kelly, you're exactly right. So if you look over the last, you know, 2010 to 2019, hundreds of billions of dollars were put into the oil and gas sector and the returns were negative. So as we moved into 2020 and beyond, we've got a new set of management, new set of investors. And here's what they're clearly saying. They're saying to, to, to all of these oil companies and these natural gas companies, return cash to us. Show us that you're a good business. And the energy companies and managements have responded and their stock prices have responded. So the sector in general has gone from the worst performing sector from 2010 to 2019 to this year being one of the best performing sectors in the S&P 500. And we think that this trend will just continue. So it turns out that oil investors should have been pounding the table for ESG all along. The one thing oil investors should be campaigning for is for ESG investors and funds and what have you to make them divest out of oil because it's incredibly bullish for the for the energy price. My point is there's no way this can be sustainable. You can't tell me that energy stocks can continue to perform well simply on this idea that the price per barrel is going up, but there's going to be less and less of it pumped and used over time. Or can they? Well, you know, you know, a couple things, though, a couple things. So so obviously commodity prices have an impact on certain uh, energy stocks, especially the oil and gas producers. And so uh, with, with the, the expectation of less capital, the expectation is we'll continue to have lower supply, but demand continues to stay the same. So as a result, the, the commodity prices have just have just risen accordingly. However, here's the other important point and why energy stocks could potentially continue to outperform even in an environment where this decarbonization mega trend really just continues for decades going forward. Because some of the energy companies have gone from resisting uh, the, this decarbonization trend to embracing mm-hmm. and now participating in decarbonization. And that's really important because a lot of energy companies will be part of this energy transition and, and they'll be winners as, as a result of that. But are you really telling me that the likes of the oil majors are performing well this year because they're transitioning their businesses? I mean, are the economics of these new businesses better than the economics of the old one, which is now becoming more attractive as oil prices rise? Well, I, I think I think the bottom line is the cash flows of the underlying companies have improved. And we all know that the cash flows will drive stock prices higher. Obviously, higher commodity prices have helped, especially the majors and, and, and other companies as well. But but it is the fact that these oil CEOs and Exxon and Chevron in particular um, are embracing, looking for opportunities to participate in new technologies that could really accelerate the pace of decarbonization. And so what are some of those? Well, carbon capture is a big opportunity. Hydrogen is a big opportunity. Renewable natural gas is a big opportunity. You know, who can who can actually pull that off? Um, a lot of people think that potentially that could be some of the big majors. And if they do, that will accelerate their growth profile as well. Final quick question, Rob. So again, to kind of illustrate what seems like a strange paradigm for these stocks, you have major divestment pushing up oil prices for a key uh, sort of input to the business cycle and something that consumers pay a lot for every day. That's got to lead to demand destruction at some point or no. I mean, are, are consumers or businesses or others who use oil and oil byproducts going to push back on these higher prices and create demand destruction, or are they going to be able to take it? Well, we've never come out of a pandemic before to see what the impact on, on demand is going to be. But so far, what we've seen is there's been tremendous demand for oil-related products and, and, and gasoline, and we're probably just getting started, right? It's going to be a summer full of, 
of, of everybody wanting to escape and, and, and experience what they weren't able to experience last year. And so, so demand um, really seems to be rising no matter what, what, what the price is for gasoline. But, but longer term, uh, gasoline prices probably come, come, back, come back down um, and oil prices stabilize in the 60 to $70 a range. Um, and then we'll see much longer term. What you're talking about is, is where, where will demand for oil and uh, gasoline and oil-related products be um, as this energy transition really accelerates? Um, and we look at that every single day. Uh, if, if you think about it, there are a lot. There's a lot of oil-related products that are necessary for the clean energy transition, for yeah. wind turbines and things along those lines as well. So, uh, b- big picture, we just see that there's a huge opportunity in energy, in energy infrastructure in particular, and and, and there's a lot of a lot of cash, a lot of dividend yields that will be coming out of uh, the energy sector. <laughs> and investors, we think want dividends, especially in an environment where we've got a ten-year that's that, that that's so low. Absolutely, Rob. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it today. Rob Thummel talking through what's happening on the oil space. Coming up, Wall Street is out with a slate of initiations on Oatly nearly a month after its IPO. The alt milk stop is, stock is up 33% from its debut, although it's down almost 7% today. Can it avoid going sour? We'll explore. As we head to break, a reminder that June is Pride Month. All month long, CNBC is spotlighting contributors, business leaders, and our own on-air anchors and producers. Here is GT Living Food CEO, Dave. The challenges I have faced as being a member of the LGBTQ community is breaking stereotypes that still exist. Since being an openly gay executive is still relatively new in the business world, there are many misconceptions about our skills and our strengths. That's why it's very important to defy labels and disprove antiquated perceptions. today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Let's get you a check on the markets, which have kind of a 2020 feel to them. Why? Because the Nasdaq is outperforming today by four-tenths of a percent. The S&P is negative by a quarter percent. And the Dow's down 238. That's two-thirds of a percent. It's pretty much near its session lows. More on that in a moment. Some of the movers this hour include Goldman with a double downgrade on, to sell on Ferrari, saying they no longer expect the automaker to try to make up the volume that was lost as a result of the pandemic. Interesting there. Uh, race shares are down 3% on this news. And they're also on pace for their third straight monthly loss. For more on the call and the details, head over to cmc.com slash pro. And let's check on the vaccine makers after Novavax said its two-dose COVID shot is 90% effective overall. It plans to file for FDA authorization later this year. If granted, it would become the fourth vaccine approved for emergency use in the U.S. Novavax shares down about 1% today. Biggest mover in the space is actually Moderna, out 5.5%. And we are getting some news from the U.K. where Prime Minister Boris Johnson is delaying his plans to lift the COVID-19 lockdown restrictions by a month citing the spread of that Delta variant that's been so rampant in the UK in particular lately, something we're all watching here as well. Let's get to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. Here's what's 
else is happening at this hour. Let's start in Illinois. A major fire at a chemical plant there is forcing evacuations of everyone within a mile of the facility, including a high school. You can see that black smoke there. That could be seen at least 25 miles away. Authorities report one person is injured. In Austin, Texas, authorities are still looking for a second suspect in the mass shooting that left one dead and more than a dozen injured. Investigators believe a dispute between the two suspects is what prompted the shooting. And on the news tonight, a live report from Austin on the latest gun violence and also what's driving this recent rise that includes more than a dozen mass shootings this last weekend across the country. And on a much happier note, New York City announcing its first major parade in more than a year. A long-promised celebration of frontline heroes will happen on July 7th. The ticker tape parade will take place along Manhattan's iconic Canyon of Heroes. Wow, Kelly, hard to believe that uh, parades are back. You know what? That is a great idea. Wouldn't you like to see that? Why can't we have that all over the country? Yeah, I agree. They, it certainly deserved. I'm with you, Kelly. Maybe you can even do it for July 4th. They're doing theirs, you know, July 7th. But, you know, the perfect time to maybe bring everybody together, get out in the and streets. Perfect occasion. You know, hopefully if the Delta variant cooperates. Um, but that, I love that. I love that. Rahel, thank you very much. Rahel Solomon. All in on Oatly, the Netflix of gaming and Musk's Bitcoin about face. It's all coming up in a moment right here on Rapid Fire. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on Oatly and a few other things that should be on your radar. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines are Michael Santoli, CNBC.com, Steve Kovac, and Axios media reporter Sarah Fisher. First up, got to talk about what's going on with Oatly stock price. It's been a month since the IPO. So far, so good. We've got a slew of upgrades on Wall Street today and initiations, which bring the total calls to nine overweight ratings, five holds, zero sells. So the average price target now is right around $31 or 10% upside from here. But Michael, the shares today are down more than 7%. Poor K. Well, 10% upside for a stock that's already kind of come out with a lot of hoopla probably doesn't seem all that impressive. If you look at the details of even the bullish calls, uh, the price targets are based on things like 14 times 2022 forecast revenues, 10 times 2023 forecast uh, multiple. So it, it looks like there's still just a lot of room and time for this to grow into anything like the current valuation, uh, even if it is uh, kind of a better mousetrap, uh, so to speak, and maybe the, the flavor of the moment in terms of addressing a huge potential market. But uh, it's come a long way, even just out of the gate. Right. It's up about 30 percent over the past month, Sarah. Yeah, it's doing very well. And I think one of the things you'll find is that whenever you have a big life change, whether it's a pandemic or coming out of the pandemic, new trends uh, trends and commodities tend to take hold. But now that we're starting to solidly move out of the pandemic, I think investors are wondering, is this really a long-term trend where people are going to pivot, look into healthier alternatives, or is this something that's just going to be in the moment? We don't know right now. So while there's a lot of upside for sure, I think people are starting to get bearish on the long-term here for oat. And we, Steve, there's probably already like the next oat milk thing out there, right? I mean, there's always <laughs> something new on the market. There's a, someone told me about rice milk, which I've never heard about. But oh, I, what I really liked in these initiations we saw today was uh, Piper Sandler saying it's not really just about like the geriatric millennials like me. We're hitting our early 30s <laughs> and milk upsets our tummies too much. So we're going for the oat milk. It's also about it's a marketing story more than anything else, which I found really interesting. That Super Bowl ad we all were talking about a couple months ago uh, and also just the influencer barista marketing they've been doing. It, it's more a marketing story than a health story 
story or, or, or this kind of hot trend of alternative milk story. I'm going to have to start following more influencer baristas because that's uh, noticeably absent. Yeah, exactly. Pete's right now. All right. Uh, next, Microsoft announcing a host of new products and games at its E3 video game conference, including dedicated streaming hardware that people can hook up to their TV so they can use their cloud gaming services. CEO Satya Nadella declared that Microsoft is all in on gaming. Wall Street seems to agree with Evercore, noting they could become the Netflix of gaming, of gaming Steve. Yeah, this is uh, really exciting. When you have the CEO of a $1.9 trillion company saying, we're all in, in gaming, you got to pay attention. This is way bigger than just buying the new Xbox or the new PlayStation 5. They're saying, look, we're going to enable it so you can stream your games to any smart TV that you buy. Today, when you buy a TV, you know, you have the Netflix or HBO apps kind of preloaded on there. What they're going to do is say, hey, we're going to put the Xbox app on there too and open up our service to a lot more people. No more waiting in line or waiting for this chip shortage to kind of sort itself out to buy a console. Yeah. Anybody can get this gaming experience just on their smart TV. That's really, really uh, exciting to hear from Microsoft. Yeah, they've done really well in this space. Investors love it. Sarah, do I need to be gaming? I feel like I'm missing out. You are missing out. It's the fastest growing medium out of all the beats that I cover, which is everything from music to esports. It's absolutely massive. And Microsoft is very specially equipped to take on gaming and streaming in the cloud. I mean, remember, there's only three major players in the cloud. That would be Google, Amazon, and Microsoft. But Microsoft's the only ones that have made real investments in both a streaming technology for gaming, but also the content. You'll recall that over $7 billion acquisition of Bethesda Games. They now have the perfect trifecta to really take this on in a way that Google has not been able to. They've backed down. And Amazon has not really shown an interest. Michael, could you just share a quick thought on Microsoft's share price and its size? I mean, this is an enormous company. Completely enormous. It's um, many things to most people at this point mm. in technology. So I, I think it's one of these stocks that from every different angle, you can find a reason to feel like you have to own it, uh, not just because of steadiness and long-term growth and a great balance sheet, but because they seem to have an edge in a lot of the areas that are still emerging and gaming being one of them. So I think, uh, you know, there hasn't been a misstep, a major one uh, for some time right now. So it seems as if they're able to stay fresh on all these different fronts. One final thought, Kelly, though, is to the extent we can have any kind of a fundamental discussion about what's been happening with GameStop, I think one relevant question is, if GameStop somehow transforms itself hmm. for the post-physical video game age, from whom is it taking the potential revenues? Because you're going up against Microsoft, Ooh. Amazon with Twitch, the big video game publishers, and they're going to be losing two-thirds of their revenues over time slowly through their stores. That's one of those things where, you know, I don't think that's the discussion around GameStop, but it's worth asking the That's question. a video game I'd like to play, because that's quite a narrative going up against those guys. We'll see if they can do it. Next, it's deja vu for Bitcoin with an Elon Musk tweet helping to send it back up to the 40K mark. Ironically, the Tesla CEO was replying to someone criticizing him for manipulating Bitcoin's price. He wrote, quote, this is inaccurate. Tesla only sold about 10% of its holdings to confirm BTC could be liquidated easily without moving the market. When there's confirmation of reasonable clean energy usage by miners with positive future trend, Musk said, Tesla will resume allowing Bitcoin transactions. Well, you can see the pop in Bitcoin around 2 p.m. yesterday when he tweeted that. Sarah, what are your thoughts? What a tease. We are not going to get to a point where Bitcoin is going to become more environmentally friendly for a really long time, Kelly. But it's notable that Musk's tweets can send this thing into such a volatile spin. Now, I'm curious to understand what his time frame is looking like here. If he's saying that one day he is going to be able to accept Bitcoin, 
When is one day? And until then, does the stock continue to go up? Or is his next NSNL parents make it go way back down? I have no idea. And that just, to me, makes this thing, which isn't an investment, it's not a currency, just a wild card on any company's balance sheet, not just Tesla's. Fair enough. And Michael, I guess what I'm thinking about is during our crypto special last week when, you know, those involved claim that uh, crypto mining is generally um, cleaner, let's call it, than normal energy usage. I'm sure that's true. Right. Um, if that's the case, then people either don't have a case to make or their cases. We just don't want any of any energy, especially any of the old energy mix to be used for Bitcoin mining. So until or unless we outlaw that, there's nothing, I mean, it's kind of part of the, the trend, right? It, it's all part of the trend. I mean, look, Bitcoin mining uses a higher share of renewable right. energy than the standard usage of electricity, yes. But it's a massive incremental usage of power that didn't exist in the world several years ago. Mm -hmm. And so you're still using more dirty energy than you would otherwise have. But I think really when it comes to this is this is retroactive reasoning all along the way with Musk, it, it appears. They just had to sell a few thousand Bitcoin to know if that would tank the market. <laughs> 50,000 trade a day on average, many days more than that. There was no need to dump Bitcoin to find out if the market could handle Tesla selling a few thousand Bitcoin. It just seems very suspect rationale all around here. I, well said. And speaking of Tesla, we also have this cryptocurrency set to get a big upgrade in November. It's called Taproot. It's designed to increase efficiency and privacy. Analysts say it should also make it more useful to developers by letting them build applications, which is kind of, Steve, the appeal of Ethereum and, and all of these others. How big a deal, I mean, is Taproot and... Again, I mean, this is something that people in the Bitcoin community, let's call it, they're way ahead of these trends, right? So by the time we're talking about it, it's either priced in or, you know what I'm saying? Like, tell me what you think all the significance is here. Mr. Kovac. Was that for... Oh, that's me. Okay, sorry. Um, yeah, I think the significance is it's catching up to Ethereum. What this upgrade, this Taproot upgrade does is it makes it better to do those uh, blockchain contracts. That it, That's kind of like Ethereum superpower here. Um, is it priced in? I don't know. That was my first thought is when this goes live or supposedly goes live uh, later this fall, will that affect Ethereum prices and will Bitcoin's dominance just take off and leave Ethereum in the dust? That's what I'm the most curious to see. And we look at the price action today, Mike, of Bitcoin, which is back above 40,000. So you have the Musk tweet, you have the Taproot news. And what, what did Paul Tudor Jones say about it? Well, he said he thought it was a, a, like a core 5% holding as a diversifier. And it's, it's basically just math. It's, it's understandable. It's transparent. And as somebody who comes from his background, he says you might as well own some of it. Um, so I, I think that's actually pretty consistent with a lot of uh, big investors thinking right now. But that shows you that it's being treated as kind of a digital gold, as many, many have said before. And what this taproot thing is, OK, maybe it creates more uh, versatility in how it's used in a practical manner. But it's almost like, oh, we found a new way, a new use of, of physical gold and electronics. Hmm. What does that mean for the price of gold? I don't know. You tell me how much of the price of gold is investment demand versus practical usage. And then we can talk about what it means for the yeah, we don't price. usually marry gold trends and technical analysis to, like, jewelry trends uh, here on air. That's right. Maybe yeah. Bitcoin will be different. Guys, thank you all. It's been a pleasure today. Michael Santoli, Steve Kovac, and Sarah Fisher of Axios. Coming up, you may have noticed your Uber rides, your Airbnb stays. They're all getting more expensive lately. We'll take a look at the end of the Millennial Lifestyle Subsidy and what it means for both customers and companies right after this. Welcome back. The quest to become profitable is also leading to the end of the millennial lifestyle as we know it. 
pandemic belt tightening and surging demand have led food delivery apps like DoorDash and Grubhub to increase fees. Airbnb is charging 35% more for vacation rental these days. Uber and Lyft rides cost 40% more now than they did a year ago. My next guest is the author of a new op-ed called Farewell Millennial Lifestyle Subsidy, and he says this is actually a sign of progress both for the economy and society. Let's bring in Kevin Roos. He's a tech columnist for The New York Times. Kevin, you've been crushing it lately. Welcome. It's great to have you here. Hey, Kelly, good to see you. Perhaps my favorite story of yours that we talk about all the time is the YOLO economy, of which, you know, that's probably a whole separate discussion, but it does seem to underpin all the quitting and all the different things that are going on right now. But maybe this millennial lifestyle subsidy is part of this broader story. What do we know is going on with the millennials? They're in their childbearing years. They're looking to kind of get more space. They're thinking about schools, all this stuff. They're realizing their old lifestyle was maybe more expensive, will be more expensive if they try to maintain it going forward. And now technology has opened up the opportunity to live in totally different ways and work in school and all that sort of thing. So I don't know. I mean, we look at the Uber and Lyft stocks and they're, they're not doing too well lately. Maybe they've got a real problem on their hands. Well, I think we're coming out of this kind of golden age of these subsidies, these sort of investor-backed startups that were offering services for, frankly, less than they should have. Um, you know, SoftBank, other investors poured billions of dollars into startups, and those startups used the, that investor money to essentially offer their services and their goods below market price. And so what that resulted in for plenty of us was that we got cheap Ubers and cheap Airbnbs, cheap food delivery, cheap scooter rentals. Um, I, I ran some numbers on, on Bird, one of the scooter companies, and found that in 2019, they were losing $9.66 for every $10 in revenue. Hmm. Um, that's, that's frankly a crazy business model, and that's become a little more sensible um, since then, as have the business models of all these companies. But we're, we're seeing these prices go up, and they may continue to go up. I, I think it's undeniable that you, know, you can't kind of like, you know, do what we thought was so exciting and fun and cheap 10 years ago. Here's my question. Who can start like the parent lifestyle subsidy? Because I would be all in on that trade. You know, where, and, and to put it differently, where is all the capital going now? It previously was going into, let's call it the millennial lifestyle space and subsidizing that. Now, where is the capital going and what kind of trends are we? Should we I look at, some, you know, my husband's insurance. Now, I look at all of those startups and wonder, are they really going to be viable over time? What are all the different ways that we are thinking that something's cheaper than it actually is? Well, there's still some of it happening in this kind of sharing economy. There, there are now these like fast delivery apps um, that people talk about. These sort of ten-minute delivery apps that are that are getting a lot of subsidies from investors. You also see some of it still in some of these companies. I mean, Uber, Lyft, Bird. These are still not profitable companies, so there is some subsidy still taking place there. Um, but I think we're seeing that amount going into you know maybe crypto startups or fintech. I mean, th there are lots of. So if you just follow the VC money, you see where services maybe are being offered below their true cost. Is this just you frustrated at how much, you know, how long it takes to get an Uber, Kevin, how expensive it is? And and by, I mean, you know, it, it, it is an undeniable thing that we thought we were going to have this whole delivery economy, this on-demand economy. Is that even going to be viable now? Well, it may be, but it may just be a luxury. Like maybe it was supposed to be a luxury all along and we just had kind of this deflationary pressure on the prices of all these things from these venture capital investors. So maybe they'll just become luxuries again. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, if you are a real business that has to make a P&L every month that has to make more than you spend, you can't compete 
with a service that has billions of dollars in venture capital to spend undercutting your prices. And so maybe this return to something more like a normal uh, market for these goods and services will be healthy for businesses of all kinds. It's a great point. I've seen a, a car service in town advertising again, and they, you know, the flyer looks like it hasn't been updated since 1995, but they're basically saying, hey, we're a better experience. We're the same price. We're still around. We have memory. You know, we can be to you uh, everything that maybe your, your ride sharing is not. Kevin, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Kevin Roos of the New York Times. Golden oldies. Americans are hanging on to their cars longer than ever now. And thanks to increased pandemic demand, it's been a boon for used auto dealers. We have all those details next. And a quick programming note, Morgan Stanley CEO James Gorman is on Closing Bell today in a CNBC exclusive 4 p.m. Eastern time. You don't want to miss it. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. The pandemic increase in demand for used vehicles, plus drivers hanging on to their existing cars longer, has increased once again the age of cars on the road. Phil LeBeau is here with the latest numbers. Hi, Phil. Kelly, 12.1 years. That is the average age of a vehicle in the United States. If that sounds long in terms of how old a vehicle is, it's because it is a new record high. It keeps going up and it really shot up in the last year and a half, especially if you've seen more people hang on to their vehicles a little bit longer. To put this in some perspective here, there are about 280 million vehicles on the road in the United States. Guess what? 25% of them, 70 million, are at least 16 years or older. That's a reflection of how long people are holding on to their vehicles. And the folks who put this, today, this data together, IHS market, they're not surprised. In a lot of ways, I think uh, it, it's uh, out of necessity that vehicles are staying on the road longer uh, because it's more expensive to buy new. And so you have to squeeze more value out of that vehicle for a longer period of time. All of this is good news. For the auto dealers, whether it's on the new side, on the used side, they're all benefiting from people who are buying used vehicles. Remember, the new vehicle dealers, they have as big a business on the used side as those who are strictly dedicated to the used market. Bottom line is this, Kelly, people are holding on to their vehicles longer. And look, the reliability continues to improve every year. So the vehicles are no longer like 30 years ago, where after 10 years, it was, you know, ready to go to the trash yard. They can last a lot longer. So uh, point well taken, Phil. We're also watching the GM shareholder meeting, which is going on right yep. now. Dividend, a big question. You know, the prospects for raising it. What do you hear so far? Prospect for reinstating it, Kelly. Uh, they suspended it last year when everything happened with the pandemic. Uh, Mary Barra was just asked about it about three minutes ago. She said, nothing new. We will revisit the issue and may have some news a little bit later on this year. Hmm. Okay, so kicking the can down the road there. GM shares, by the way, only down about 1% on that. Ford, also, Phil, we should mention, outperforming both of these stocks, pretty much outperforming Tesla, I believe, year to date. Uh, they are, and that's because of the belief that when it comes to the EV market, both Ford and General Motors will be primary players, let's say, over the next 15 or 20 years, and that they're just scratching the surface. By comparison, Tesla, since the beginning of the year, people have said, look, they already had a heck of a run-up. How do you value this company? People struggle with that, and as a result, the shares have not risen as much as they have for both Ford and GM since uh, January 1st. Yep, Ford up about 70%, 46% gain for GM. Phil, thank you so much, as always, you our bet. Phil LeBeau. That does it for The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. 
People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 